Esther chapter 4, verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? But you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. May God bless the reading of his word to us today. We're doing something different. We're going to give you a summary of the book of Esther in today's modern language. God has worked behind the scenes many times that people love to call coincidences. Someone defined coincidence as a miracle for which God chooses to remain anonymous. And I'm convinced that it can be seen throughout the pages of Esther. And I would encourage you this week to allow God's Holy Spirit to guide you as you read the events recorded here. It's only seven and a half pages in the average Bible to read the entire book of Esther. And it's a wealth of information in those few places. Now, if you don't like reading, we have downstairs in our library, we actually got it on video. Along with Peter and Ruth, Book of Ruth, you can watch, you can watch it word for word on the internet. It's a great way to try something different. You can go to the Gideon's Bible app and you can download it there and have it all read to you. It, it's a half hour. Our message this morning will be of a different style than normal. So that we might get a different perspective. And it will reinforce what some of you already know. And I trust that for the rest of you, you'll find when I tell you this simple story and how convincing that it'll convince you that God is still active and listening and pouring out grace upon us to be here today. I believe God's Holy Spirit works behind the scenes all the time. And in a number of occasions, people say, they'll call them coincidences. Yeah, right. And the events of the book of Esther and those surrounding the events of these pages and the coincidences are many, many, many. Once again, I'm going to say this. Someone has defined coincidences as a miracle for which God chooses to remain anonymous. Now, a side note here, when I say someone, it's one of those quotes I got stuck in my brain from reading, you know, all these, those books you read, and I just can't give credit to this person who it is. So that's why I say someone. One of the things that makes the story of Esther thrilling is the fact that it is non-fictional. It really happened. The book of Esther describes events that took place among the Jews living in Persia Empire. Not, and it's not just recorded here in God's holy word for us to see. It's also recorded in the Persian records and in a few of the Greek records and in the Egyptian records. And it's been re- retrieved by archaeologists from digs in the 1900s. We have stories. It's, it is readable in many different fashions. And on top of this, 
We have the Greek historian Herodias, who lived between 485 and 425 B.C., who was an eyewitness to much of what King Xerxes did to the Greece, and who wrote about what he saw and knew to be fact. You can read his writings on the internet today if you want to, or you can actually order one of his books if you want to be a history buff. You can order on It's only $3, right? Trust me, I might have done it. I'm, I, you know, I'm a history geek, okay? I like history. The story occurs in the reign of Xerxes, ruler of Persia. Now, this is his kingdom. In fact, at that time, no other ruler on earth was as powerful as he was. His empire included what is northern Greece, Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, northern India, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, Egypt, and Libya. That's what is, that's who he was. And in order to control this kingdom, it was divided up into 127 provinces with nobles, officials, military leaders in each province. And if you were studying his kingdom, you would actually find that he was very efficient. It was run with what some would call modern ideas. It, it was efficiently run kingdom. But remember how long ago King Xerxes ruled. It was in the years from 486 to 465 BC. He ruled for 21 years. And our story begins with King Xerxes in the third year of his reign. A very young king here proclaiming a national festival. Esther chapter 1 verse 4 says, For a full 180 days he displayed his vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. Historians and archaeological records tell us that King Xerxes brought together all these nobles, officials, and military leaders throughout the kingdom for that festival for those 180 days to impress them and to gain their support for raising a million-man army to invade Greece. And just for you trivia bus, you know, he did invade Greece in the year 480 B.C., just six years into his reign, just months after this festival. Now, let me get back to Scripture. After this six-month-long extravaganza. Do you realize six months long party? And according to Esther chapter 1 verse 5, every man was invited from the least to the greatest. And they were in the citadel of Susa and the capital of his kingdom. Esther chapter 1 verse, starting verse 7 tells us, Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant. In keeping with the king's liberality, the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink their own way. For the king had instructed all the wine stewards to serve any, each man anything he wished. 180 days. You see, the goal was to demonstrate his wealth of his kingdom and to make them aware of his greatness. Think about that. 
but it had another purpose too. And to make his political enemies afraid of him. Then in Esther chapter 1 verse 10 through 11 it says, On the last day of this tremendous banquet, when the king was high in spirits from wine. In other words, he was drunk. No, that's what it meant. He ordered his seven eunuchs. And Side note here. Every person who served the king in that, from David on down, was a eunuch. That, that was part of the thing in Babylon. They did it. And they so sent seven eunuchs to bring his wife Vashti wearing her royal crown. In order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, she was lovely to look at. Now I want you to think about it. He's drunk. He was drunk. And his motive was to impress. In fact, everything he'd done was just for show. His royal palace, the gold and silver couches, the beautiful gardens and the tapestries, the golden goblets, the lavish servings and food. And suddenly, when he's obviously not thinking, clearly, we'll word it that way, he orders his wife to come out and display herself in front of these drunken guests. That's bottom line. And she's offended by the order and refuses to do it. And how does the king respond? Verse 12. The king becomes furious and burns with anger. And by the way, if you read about the life of Xerxes, you will find that he had a terrible temper. And he did some really foolish things. Evidently, he felt that Vashti had embarrassed him in front of his guests. He made him look weak. When he wanted to look strong. So he turned to his advisors and told them what Vashti, the terrible thing she had done. If the queen can refuse to obey the king's command, they said, then the other wives might follow her example and disobey her husbands too. They tell Xerxes that unless he does something quickly, there'll be no end to disrespect. Now that's Esther 1. Chapter 1, verse 18. King Xerxes promptly removes Vashti from the queen and gets busy preparing to conquer Greece. So you got to look in the history books, but he does invade Greece, right? He does raise the million-man army and his personal bodyguard of 10,000 elite warriors called the Immortals. The Immortals. Yeah, it's, it matches the show. Remember the Spartan the 300 and all that? Yeah, they were the immortals. Now here's the path, what it would look like at that time. They invade Greece and make their way south. And they're slowed down in Theropathy. I can't pronounce it right now. I practiced all day. Theropathy. Thank you very much. Where 300 brave Spartans fought to death. Although most don't remember There was actually 4,000 other Greeks gathered there. But the Spartans holding to the very end, many of those other 4,000 were able to escape. Now the Persian army lost at least 20,000 men at this pass when they tried to get through it. They got through it. And and they continued on to Athens and and the, the cities burned to the ground. And then things turned really bad for the Persians. 
an unusually terrible storm. The storm of the century had forced all the Persian ships to be close together in a narrow strait. And it's recorded that it's a storm of the century. Nobody had ever seen one that bad. Then a few Greek ships braved the storm, and they did it with what's called Greek fire, and they set off set them all ablaze and the winds are blowing the ships are burning right and what wasn't destroyed by the storm was destroyed by the fire and Persia lost 400 ships that night in one day their entire navy was gone so they have a million man army no supply line and to make matters worse rebellions had broken out in Babylon and Egypt on the exact same time So Xerxes decides he has to get his army out of Greece as best he could to stamp out the rebellions. Now the storm is being described as an unusually terrible storm with extreme winds. Now how can you explain that happening just at the right moment, the right time, to end King Xerxes' invasion of Greece? Not a week earlier, not a week later, but just at the coincidence the exact moment it needed to happen, or was it mighty God at work? For years, we can ponder this, but let me take you this way. Four years passed, and Xerxes is finally back home. He's put down all the rebellions. Babylon and Egypt are over, and his kingdom is now secure, and he's decided to forget about Greece. So it's time to stay home and enjoy life. And that includes finding a replacement for his ex-queen Vashti. So the Bible doesn't give you all the in-between. That's all that happened in between they find a queen. His advisors recommend a search for the most beautiful women in the province. And after a year, careful grooming in the palace. Now, they all had to go to the palace for one year. And you can read about it. For six months, they did one type of grooming. Next six months, they did another type of grooming. One of those chosen young women, she was Jewish by name, is Esther. And when she was just a little girl, Esther became an orphan. So her older cousin, Mordecai, raised her just as if she was his own daughter. Well, everyone in the palace came to know Esther, and they were captivated by her charm, and so was the king. Esther chapter 2, verse 17, says that the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won favor and approval more than any of the virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen. Once again, we wonder... Was the choosing of Esther to be queen out of at least 126 other beautiful candidates, or lucky, was it lucky or coincidence or God at work? And now, there may have been more than 126, but there was 127 provinces, so there was at least one from every province. Or, matter of fact, that she was even chosen out of all the women of Susa, which was the capital city to be their candidate. Was it accident, coincidence, or mighty God at work? And and her cousin Mordecai, right, 
had a job working near the king's gate. And one day, after she was chosen, he overheard two officials plotting to assassinate King Xerxes. He reported this to Esther, who passed it on to the king's guard, giving credit to Mordecai. Then Esther chapter 2, verse 23, and when it was reported and was investigated and found to be true that the two officials were impaled on the poles of the tree. Now they called their gallows the tree, and they would stick poles out and just stick you on it. And this is recorded in the annals of the presence of the king. Actually, they found part of those annals. That's where some of the history comes from. Or what the King James Bible calls the chronicles before the king. Now, about someone overhearing a secret plotting of two officials to kill the king, and some, and that someone was Mordecai and passed on the information to Esther in order to save the king, was a coincidence or the work of God? All this is recorded in history. You can go, not just the Bible, it's all recorded in the annals. Now, in the third chapter of Esther, we're introduced to a villain. I told you, this would make a great movie. It's in the library, if you want to read it. Or watch it. His name is Haman. Haman was the favorite of the king, and he'd been given a seat of honor higher than any of the other nobles. Esther chapter 3, verse 2 says... All royal officials in the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. He was the highest official next to the king. But Mordecai, the Bible says, would not kneel down or pay honor to him. Mordecai was a righteous Jew, and he would not bow down to anybody but God. He flatly refused to bow down to Haman. And when word of Mordecai's behavior got back to Haman, Haman was so enraged, he devised a plan to exterminate Mordecai, and not just Mordecai, but all the Jews of the kingdom. They were all going to die because of one man. Esther chapter 3 says, Having learned of Mordecai's people who they were, he was scorned, and not just the idea of killing Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's peoples, the Jews throughout the whole kingdom. Haman tells Xerxes, there's a group of people in the kingdom whose customs are different than all the other peoples and don't obey the king's laws. Then he says, it's not the king's best interest to tolerate them. That's Esther 3.8. So Haman adds... If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. Esther 3.19, Xerxes tells Haman to do as he pleases, and he gives him the royal seal. Also, doesn't tell, the history tells you how much money he paid to have this done, too. It was a lot. Young and old, men or women, on a single day, they were all going to die. You can read that in Esther chapter 3, verse 13. It was decreed. They all knew it. They're going to die on this day. And when Mordecai learns of the edict, he tears his clothes and sits down in ashes and weeps for his people. Now, he was near the king's gate. Bit of trivia for you. But Mordecai wasn't the only one weeping because all throughout 
the kingdom, the Jews were weeping too because they knew they were going to die on a certain date. Meanwhile, Esther, she's secluded in the palace unaware of what's happening. But she hears that Mordecai is weeping and sends out an attendant to find out why. Mordecai sends her a copy of the edict and begs her to go before the king Xerxes and plead for the Jews. But Esther explains that it's not a good time to approach the king. In fact, there's never really a good time to approach the king because he's very temperamental, he's a temperamental man. And she might be putting her life in danger. You show up at the wrong time, you get you go out and get impaled on a pole. You see, protocol of Persia dictated no one, including the queen, was allowed to enter the king's presence without a proper invitation. To do so was death. And it had been 30 days since she had been invited into his presence. So without an invitation, she really had a good reason to fear approaching her husband, the king. Side bit. Side thing. How much trouble was she in if she hadn't been invited for 30 days? There, there's a, he was having a hissy fit or something, right? He didn't get, he, his queen wasn't, so I mean, give her some credit. She knew she was in a lot of trouble, right? Hadn't been invited to his throne room for 30 days, and now we hear uncle saying, you gotta go save us. You gotta go stand in front of him. When Esther's answer was reported to Mordecai, he replied, do not, what we read earlier, do not think that because you're the king's house that you alone of all Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for all the Jews will arise from another place. But if you and your father's family will perish, and who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. You've heard that many times quoted throughout scripture. That's where we're at right now. Esther replied back to Mordecai, go gather the Jews, all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. And do not eat or drink anything for three days, day or night, and I and my maids will do the same. And when it is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish... I perish. That was for her words. If I perish, I perish. Up to this time, Esther had followed Mordecai's instructions and not told anybody in the capital she was a Jew. But now was the time for action and she decided to put her life into God's hands. So during the three days of fasting, Esther devised a plan. If the king will come see her, she will host a, two private dinners and invite Haman also. Then, if everything goes well, on the second day, she would expose Haman for the cruel man he is. And she wants the king to repeal Haman's order to have the Jews exterminated. But the problem is here, you can't cancel a king's order once the signet ring's on it. they got to come up with a new order. It was against law to change his order. So, the first part of the plan works beautifully. 
And the king welcomes her and gladly accepts the invitation, and Hammond does too. I mean, is this just another coincidence? That the king, after a month of ignoring her, and we don't know why, welcomes her interruption where she's breaking the line, gladly accepts her invitation, and even accepts Hammond's invited too. It didn't happen. Go read. Or did God have a hand in this? Then after dinner, the first dinner, Hammond heads home. He's feeling really good about himself. He is the only one who's ever been invited to a private dinner with the king and the queen in their annals. When his wife... oh, But then on the way home, then on the way home, he sees Mordecai and he becomes enraged all over again. And... When his wife sees how angry he is, she suggests to have a gallows belt, or what they'd call a tree, 75 foot tall, and asked the king that morning to have Mordecai hung on it. They didn't use ropes, they used stakes. Then go to the king's dinner and be happy. That's Esther 5.14. Hammond likes this suggestion. So he ordered the gallows to be built, And he went to bed a happy man. No, no, no. They they recorded. He was happy in the Bible. He built some gallows. 75 foot tall. Think about how tall that is. But that night, the king couldn't just fall asleep. That night, that same night that it was being built. And he asked to have the book of annals read to the king. And that was a common thing. They'd come back and read the annals of what would happen. And he listens and he remembers how Mordecai had saved him from assassination by two palace officials. And then he asked a question. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? And the scribe says, well, nothing, king. Nothing's been done for him. You know, or is... is that's what is the attendant's answer. That's Esther 6.3. So the king decided, I have to do something in honor of Mordecai. After all, he saved my life. So the next morning, Haman arrives at the palace, eager to get permission to have Mordecai killed. Coincidence? Yeah. And before he can do that, he is summoned by the king, and Xerxes asks him what should be done for the man the king delights to honor. That's Esther 6 6. Hammond doesn't have a clue that the king is asking what should be done to honor Mordecai. He thinks he might be honoring him. So Hammond suggests a parade. Clothe this man of your honor in royal robes, put him on the king's horse and the palace of the royal crown on his head and let him be led by the streets and one of the king's noble announcing that this is the what is being done for the man the king delights to honor. Can you imagine how Hammond felt when he ends up being the man who has to lead Mordecai through the streets, shouting. 
This is being done for the man the king wishes to honor. Is it just a coincidence that the king had insomnia the exact right night and that the scribe opened up to the page the right spot? Well, parading Mordecai around the city, Haman rushes home to tell his wife what happened. And when he's telling his wife all about it, he never gets all the way through it, and he's, the escort shows up to take him to dinner number two that's been prepared. It's a wonderful feast. And the king really enjoys it. Feeling quite generous, King Xerxes asks Esther again, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. So whatever fight they had, it's over, right? He's ready. And Esther sees the opportunity. If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold into destruction and slaughter and annihilation. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is the man who would dare to do such a thing? Esther said, The adversary and enemy of this vial is Haman. In a rage, the king leaves the room. Possibly, it doesn't say there, but possibly to summon some guards. Haman, realizing that his life is hanging by a thread, throws himself on the couch where Queen Esther is reclining to beg for his life. And about that time, the king comes back in and sees Haman on the couch with the queen and exclaims, Will you even molest my queen wife with me in the house? Dumb move, right? The king's guards drag Haman away, a victim of his own evil doing. Someone tells the king about the gallows, the tree, that Haman had erected on in his own yard for Mordecai, and the king says, hang him there. So they go and stick him on a wooden pole and hang him up on the tree. Haman's carrying away, screaming and shouting, and impaled on that gallows. Esther asked the king to do something about the edict they sent out to kill the Jews. The king happily agrees, and a new royal edict is issued that all the Jews throughout the, his kingdom are to be protected and, and, and to have the right to defend themselves from any and all attackers because he could not cancel out the first degree. So he said the guards had to protect them so no one's going to come kill them. Because once he put a signet ring on it and he put his official signature on it, it could not be canceled in Persia law. Esther continues to find favor with the king. Mordecai is given all the property and position that Haman had, previously had, and every Jew in the province celebrated. There was joy and feasting because the Jews had been spared. What an ending! of a story with twists and turns which resulted in amazing deliverance for God's people. So what lesson can we learn from the story of Esther? Well, 
There are many. But I believe one major lesson is that oftentimes, oftentimes, things that happen in life are not just coincidences, but rather God's at work. We sometimes think God's not involved in our daily lives because miracles just seem so rare. But Esther's story reminds us that God can be active today in our lives just as he was in the past. God and his Holy Spirit are still working. We've all sinned, we've all fallen short, but he's He's supplied for our need of redemption by the, the cruel and ugly cross in this spotless and blemishless land going there. God sent his son to be an answer. Our problem is, when we're going through what we're going through, we don't always see God's mighty hand at work until after later. Have you ever looked back on something and realized it shouldn't have happened that way? Have you ever looked back on something and said, I'm alive now because God took care of me. I shouldn't have survived. But sometimes we go through challenges and when we're in the middle of them, we don't see his hand at work because we're in the middle of it. Nowhere in the book of Esther does it say God did anything. You have this whole story. It's seven and a half pages long. You should read it. It, God never zapped anybody. And if anybody ever needed to zap, Hammond could have used a zap, right? It's a good thing I'm not on the throne. Everything in the book of Esther, we would, modern day world would call it coincidences. But when you look at the history, when you look at the, the archaeological evidence, all this had to come into play to save the Jews. Think about this. They invade Greece, and so Babylon and Egypt both have a rebellion at the same time. Not talking to each other, but they both go to rebel. You just can't put this stuff together by accident. There, where there's a plan, there has to be a planner. Our problem is, in today's world, and all the challenges going on in today's world, we're in the middle of it, so we don't always see God working. You ever missed his mighty hand until later? Right now in the world that you and I live in, God is at work. The world around us is in turmoil. True? Is that a nice word? The world around us is crazy. Fits my definition a little better, right? And, and we like, okay, God, uh, can't you zap one or two of them? Thankfully, he doesn't because he's slow and patient waiting for all to be saved. The vilest and worst offender that we would like to give a zap to can be saved. But there will come a time when there's no more time left. And he, our Savior, will not be coming on a nice little soft donkey, coming meek and mild. He's coming back on a horse of war, and he's going to clean house. But until that time comes, we're called to be faithful. And to pay more attention to some of these coincidences.
the only book in the Bible, the only book recorded that does not have any action of God recorded there. There's a purpose, because this is what our lives live like. Now, if I've sparked your interest, there's a ton of information out there. But God works through what we call nowadays coincidences. We're in the right state, we're in the right town, we're in the right place, the right doctor sees us. I mean, some doctors are unique, and they don't know their heads from whatever. But there's always nurses, they keep us alive, right? But we need that. The one person that has the right spark at the right moment to keep us going. And guess what? Someday we're all going to die. We're not. If God doesn't come back, we're going to get rid of these bodies. Do you want to take your old, worn-out body to heaven? No. We get a brand new one built by the master builder. No more aches, no more pains, no more woes. But until then, your body's going to fall apart. That's part of coincidences. you got to fall apart to, to go home. I just wish it wasn't so painful, don't you? <laughs> we need to close. Our Heavenly Father, you've given us the book of Esther that we might realize how much you actually do work. It's an amazing amount of scripture, Father. One lady saved the entire Jewish race in Persia by her actions. She was never promised she was going to live through the meeting of the king. But by your Holy Spirit, by your mighty hand of working in the background, everything was in the right place at the right time. Give us wisdom to understand that for our lives today. And all God's people said, Amen.